are in week three of a series that we're calling Songs of the Savior. And in this series, what we're doing is we're beginning each sermon with a Christmas hymn or a Christmas carol and taking a look at some of the theological truths that it has to offer. And we're looking at the biblical story that that particular hymn or carol is rooted in. Two weeks ago, we looked at the song Silent Night and investigated its source, Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, it's where we read of God announcing the birth of his son through a host of of angels to a ragtag group of shepherds who were living in the fields outside of Bethlehem. It's a great mystery that he chose to uh, announce the birth of his son to these people who were considered outcasts. And then last week, we took a look at the song, We Three Kings, which was based upon Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and the story of the wise men coming to worship the one true king. Today, we'll be starting with the song, Joy to the World, which was written by Isaac Watson. In just a moment, Aaron and Jefferson are going to be singing just a little bit of that song, and then we'll jump into the the roots of that song, which are uh, found in Psalm 98. But let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this season of expectation. Father, I pray that you would enable us to slow down. I pray that you would enable us to rest. Father, I pray that you would enable us to experience the joy that comes from knowing that our momentary problems and troubles are just that. They are momentary. And though they are painful, and uh, though they threaten to break us at times, Father, we can find joy in the eternal hope that we have in your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you, guys. So, in the early 1700s, Isaac Watts was a blossoming poet. On the way home from church one day, he was complaining about how boring and unsingable the uh, songs were at church. And so his dad, in fatherly frustration, turned to him and suggested that if he didn't like the music, maybe he should write something better, which is what he did. In fact, he ended up writing 750 hymns over the course of his life, and Joy to the World was one of those. It's based in large part upon Psalm uh, 98, which we're going to jump into here in just a moment, and it gives a glimpse into the themes of the psalm, worship, salvation, divine remembrance, healing of the world. And what's interesting about uh, this song, Joy to the World, is it wasn't originally written as a Christmas song by Watts. It was actually written as something separate. But let's do this. Let's go ahead and jump into Psalm 98 and see the origin of this uh, Christmas tune. Beginning in verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, and with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So what do we do with Psalm 98? Let's take a look at several key themes very quickly. The first is this, is that we worship God because he has saved us. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. And so this begins with the phrase, sing to the Lord a new song. I think there are probably many of us in this room who realize that the older we get, the more we like the old songs that we grew up with, right? They're familiar to us. They're nostalgic. If you grew up in the 1970s, you might listen to Led Zeppelin, Queen, or Pink Floyd. It's possible. That is not them. But that's right. We'll come back to them in a minute. If you grew up in the 80s, it might be Van Halen or Guns N' Roses, unless you grew up in the Christian subculture, in which case you might have listened to Petra. That was them. You can go back now. Show us Petra. There you go. Sweet. I couldn't really find any incredibly cheesy photographs. That one's pretty bad, but not, not as bad as it could have been. Amy Grant, if you grew up in the Christian subculture, she looks like she's 15 right there. That's remarkable. Or DeGarmo and Key. We got a picture of them. And fortunately, we did find some good hair for DeGarmo and Key. All right. Anyway. If you're a child of the 90s, it may be Pearl Jam, U2, or Nirvana. Even this sermon series is actually built on our nostalgia for old songs, old Christmas hymns, right? Even uh, the, the phrase, sing to the Lord a new song, it indicates something. In fact, it indicated something, uh, it communicated that something so amazing was getting ready to happen that all the old songs just wouldn't do. In fact, what God is saying through Psalm 98 is you're going to want to write a new one for what is about to happen. And on this occasion, for a new song, there's going to be no doubt about who the hero is. It's clear. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. His right hand, his holy arm, his righteousness. Each of these phrases make it clear who is responsible for this salvation, for this saving act. We don't save ourselves. Rather, we are saved because of God's initiative and because of God's power towards us. So imagine a scene. I just had a friend recently who said they were going on a cruise over Christmas with their family. And so I just imagine that on the boat of that cruise ship, there's a bodybuilder who's working out on the deck of an ocean liner of that cruise ship, and he's working out doing some curls, and he's doing some push-ups in order to get what we call the beach body. And let's say maybe he has some baby oil on, and some of the baby oil leaks onto the, the uh, deck of the ship, and he slips, and he falls overboard into the sea. Unable to swim, he begins to drown, and someone from the deck throws him a life preserver, and using their strength, they pull him back to the ship. Now imagine that instead of thanking the rescuer, the bodybuilder turns to an onlooker and says, dude, did you see my biceps as I held onto that life preserver? Did you see my glutes as I flutter kicked, right? Inevitably, what would happen is that we would listen to that man and we would think about how arrogant it seemed uh, for him to take credit for his salvation. Part of what Psalm 98 is communicating here is that we are saved because of God's mighty strength. We are saved because of God's right hand. We are saved because of God's initiative towards us. The Psalm 98 makes it clear that God gets the credit for our salvation, not us. And the Psalm also makes it clear that God's salvation is for all people. Listen again to the words of verse 2. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Now, this statement might not sound like a big deal to us today, especially since we are one of the nations that this psalm refers to, but it would have been paradigm shifting for the Israelites. God's saving action wasn't just for the Hebrews. It wasn't just for the Jews. It just wasn't for their nation, but it was for all people of the world. This is why we can join with, with Isaac Watts in singing joy to the world, because the incarnation is for all people. 
not only has God accomplished our salvation, but this psalm also teaches that God hasn't forgotten us, that he still remembers us. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Again, God is the one whose saving action is in view here. He has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten you. Now, some of us have experience with forgetting things. Maybe you forgot some homework when you're in middle school. Uh, Maybe you forgot someone's birthday one time. Who knows what it might be? Um, Once when we were living in Atlanta and I was working at Perimeter Church, Levi had just been born. He was probably about three months old and, uh, you know, got to church, parked the car. Actually, I dropped Krista, May, and Sam off and uh, went and parked the car and I said, I'll take Levi. So I parked the car, uh, started, you know, walking in and I got probably about 50 or 60 feet from the car when I was sort of thinking like, all right, I've got my keys, I've got my phone, I've got my bag, I'm missing something. And I realized that I'd forgotten Levi in the car. Sorry, buddy. Anyway, but the good news is I remember turned back around and I got him, right? Some of you in this room have felt forgotten by the very people in your lives who are supposed to love and care for you. Just last week, I was sitting in the waiting room at Quick Tune and Lube, and there was a man and a woman who walked in and sat down. And I was, you know, reading a magazine, and I heard the woman say, Today is my birthday. Clearly, the man had forgotten. I presume it was her husband. And instead of apologizing, he just began making excuses, saying, well, you know how busy I've been lately, and I've just had so much on my mind. You can imagine how hurtful that was to the woman. As humans, we occasionally forget something or someone important, but not God. In Exodus 3, we read of God appearing to Moses in the desert, The children of Israel had been forced into slavery by the Egyptians, and Moses had fled into the wilderness where he was working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. It's very likely, and it would have been very understandable uh, for Moses to have assumed that God had simply forgotten him. Or it would have been easy for Moses to assume that God didn't care anymore. But then God appeared to Moses in the wilderness. I'm going to read a section of Exodus chapter 3. God called to him from within the bush. This is the story of the burning bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said... I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have not forgotten. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I haven't forgotten. And I am concerned about their suffering. I have not forgotten my people. What we see in this passage is that God hasn't forgotten Moses. He hasn't forgotten the children of Israel. And he hasn't forgotten the covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Joseph. The message for us And the message from Psalm 98 is that God has not forgotten us either because we are his children, we're his family. Although at this time of year, it's often tempting to want to be done with those who have let us down. There's uh, an an author named Wendell Berry uh, who wrote a short story called Thicker Than Liquor. I'm going to read a little section. In this particular short story, Thicker Than Liquor, a young man named Wheeler tries to come to terms with his uncle's alcoholism. 
As a child, Wheeler loved his Uncle Peach. That was his name, Uncle Peach. But as Wheeler became an adolescent, he began to see that Uncle Peach was actually drunk more often than not. And rather than being happy to be in a relationship with him, Wheeler wanted nothing to do with him. At one point, Wheeler turns to his mother, that is Uncle Peach's sister, and he protests to heck with him. Why don't you let him get on by himself the best way he can? What's he done for you? His mother answers, because blood is thicker than water and thicker than liquor too. Wheeler goes off to university and then to law school. He returns home to begin his new life as an attorney, having recently married this wonderful young new wife. One day, a hotel clerk calls Wheeler, asking if someone can get his Uncle Peach, who's gotten drunk and has horribly messed up the hotel room. Instinctively, Wheeler says that he'll come and help his uncle, and he goes off to love his mother's brother, not so much because he loves Uncle Peach, but because she does. He finds Uncle Peach disheveled and the room torn apart. Cleaning him up, he gives him coffee and brings him home, but before the train ride is over, Uncle Peach throws up again. Wheeler does his best to clean them both up and to bring them back to Uncle Peach's home, enduring more vomit along the way. Barry writes, Finally, after this had happened perhaps a dozen times, Wheeler, who had remained angry, said, I hope you puke your guts out. And Uncle Peach, who lay quaking and white against the seat back, said, Oh goodness, honey, you can't mean that. As if his anger had finally stripped all else away, suddenly Wheeler saw Uncle Peach as perhaps his mother had always seen him, poor, hurt, weak, immortal, twice hurt because he knew himself to be hurt and because he knew himself to be weak and mortal. And then Wheeler knew what he did need from Uncle Peach. He needed him to be comforted. He needed him to be loved. And that was it. He put his arm around Uncle Peach and then patted him as if he were a child. No, he said, I don't mean it. The story finishes with a surprising act of mercy. When they finally arrive at Uncle Peach's home, Wheeler decides to stay with his sick uncle rather than going home to his new bride. And so after putting the old man to bed, Wheeler climbs in with him. As the hours pass, he feels the terrors of Uncle Peach's mostly sleepless night. But eventually, Wheeler went to sleep, his hand remaining on Uncle Peach's shoulder where it had come to rest. The holidays have a way of awakening old wounds. Some of you this morning can identify with Wheeler, this character in Barry's story. You're in the position of being the responsible one whose life is actually together. And you're in the position of having to make a choice of how to love someone who is unlovable or at least incredibly difficult to love. Or maybe you're in the position of Wheeler's mom who has been loving that unlovable person for some time now and maybe you're really, really tired And maybe you feel unseen, maybe you feel completely taken for granted and taken advantage of. It's likely that at some deep level, you long for someone to take care of you, to let you be weak for just a moment. Or maybe, maybe you identify with Uncle Peach, and you know your brokenness is costing those people around you who you love. Regardless of which of these characters you identify with, the message of Psalm 98 The message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation is that God hasn't, will not forget you. He will not give up on you. Do you realize that you worship a God who came to your aid, who willingly cleaned up your uncleanliness, who willingly climbed into your humanity to comfort you, 
and to be with you because he loves you in spite of all of your unloveliness. We worship a God who has remembered us. We worship a God who has accomplished our salvation. And then finally, the third thing we see in this passage is that we worship a God who comes to judge the earth. Look at verses four through nine. Beginning of verse four, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and with the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. I don't know about you, but as you're reading through those verses four through nine, part of me is reading along and I'm like, I'm so with you, David. Shout for joy? Absolutely. Burst into jubilant song? Yes. Make music to the Lord? Come on. But I was expecting uh, to praise the Lord because he is good or because he is loving or because he comes to bring mercy I was not expecting to be moved to praise the Lord because he comes to judge the earth. Just not what I was expecting there. Uh, Pastor Albert Barnes writes about this uh, Psalm 98 passage where he says this, One cannot read this psalm without being a happier man, without lofty views of God, without feeling that he is worthy of universal praise, without recognizing that he is in a world where the mind should be joyful, that he is under the dominion of a God whose reign should fill the mind with gladness. Okay, all I can say about that is why in the world would God coming to judge the earth fill my mind with gladness? Who of us in this room honestly wants God to give them what they deserve? That's what judgment is. Not me. I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. If God is our judge, then we should want to run, not rejoice. We should want to wail, not worship. We should want to scream, not sing. How in the world can God's judgment possibly be good news? How can that be good news? The answer, of course, is because of Jesus. Hebrews tells us this, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. They weren't enough. We have been made holy. We've been made clean we've been forgiven, we've been justified, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Just listen to the finality of the forgiveness that Jesus offers you, that you have been forgiven once for all. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he, God, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. How can God's judgment be good news? Because Jesus was judged in your place. He was judged in our place. Because we are judged not upon our unrighteousness, but upon Jesus' righteousness. Remember in verse 2 of Psalm 98, where we're told that God has revealed his righteousness to the nations, right? It's this great unwrapping of this great gift, this great present that is for all people. This is the good news. 
This is the reason for that new song. God has substituted the righteousness of his son's life, death, and resurrection for our flawed, deficient, and rebellious record and has placed that record upon his son, punishing him in our place. In Tim Keller's sermon, Mercy Not Sacrifice, he says the following. It means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus recognizes is not between the good and the bad. That's not what separates you. The only distinction that divides humanity now is between the proud and the humble. That's the only one that counts. It's the only one that matters. Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I am not worthy. You don't owe me a good life. You don't owe me anything but wrath. The minute that happens, he rushes in to eat with you. If you say, on the other hand, you owe me a good life, the minute that happens, he says, I have not come for you. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. The message of the Christmas, of this Christmas time, of this Advent season, is always the gospel. It's always the good news. It's why we can join with Isaac Watts in singing, Joy to the World, the Savior Reigns. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that through Psalm 98 and through these Christmas songs and hymns, Father, through the stories of Jesus coming that we read through 14-year-old girls and shepherds and Iranian astrologers, Father, that the message over and over again is that there can be joy to all people because of your son, Jesus, who came to save and to rescue us. And so, Father, I pray that we would sing these songs today. I pray that we would give gifts this Christmas season. I pray that we would prepare Christmas lunches and dinners, Father. I pray that we would do all of this in the joy that we have received because we know the truth of your son Jesus and who he came to be, what he came to do, and how it is that he came to rescue and save us. And so, Father, let us stand here today joyfully singing because of the rescue mission of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray.